See, earlier this week I was reading in, uh, in the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John. When you come to John chapter 2, uh, there's a, you know, a story that most of us are familiar with. It's the, uh, the first miracle that Jesus does. And uh, in that miracle, I mean, as the story unfolds there, Jesus' uh, mother, you know, I mean, they ran out of uh, wine. So the, Jesus' mother says, hey, can you do something about this? And Jesus says, hey, my time has not come. Now, she's a smart mother. You know what she does? She quietly goes and tells the servants, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. That's a smart mom. Right? Thank God for mothers. Happy Mother's Day. Our text this morning that we are going to look at is in First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. Okay, and uh, we're looking at verses 11 through 25. We've been going through the, uh, through the book of Peter, and we'll be continuing on in the series here. But today we look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. He was a seeker and a doer. He was the only disciple to venture out to walk on water. He was ready to fight for a cause, fighting for Jesus when the gods came to arrest him. Yet, he also tried to save his own skin by denying that he knew Jesus three times. He was there when Jesus died on the cross at Calvary. He may have been far back in the crowd. Three days later, he was witness to an empty tomb. He was there when the resurrected Savior met with the disciples. And then, after a breakfast, a hearty breakfast, I would say, on a Galilean beach, when Jesus commissioned him, go feed my sheep, Peter takes that charge very seriously. Now, apart from being schooled at the master's feet, Peter had a front row seat to the beginning and spread of Christianity. Christianity among the Jews and among the Gentiles. Now, in his waning years, having seen the numerical growth of the church, Peter is also seeing the issue the church is experiencing, both internal and external. And in a very straightforward manner, he addresses this in his writings. He reminds the reader, as we read through the book, you'll see this, he reminds the reader about the hope of eternal life. And then, he sets them on a course of action. Now we've gone through chapter 1 already, and I'll just talk about a few things that he has talked about. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Prepare your mind for action and exercise self-control. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, You are cleansed from your sin when you obey the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. In chapter 2, verse 1, Get rid of evil behavior 
be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. In chapter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen people, you are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. All this in just the chapters we have covered so far. Now some of you like an outline. So I'm just going to give you a verbal outline that I, I put together. In, in uh, chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, it's the Christian life in the public square. Verses 13 and through 17 is the Christian's interaction with the government. Verses 18 to 20 is the Christian and the employer. And verses 21 to 25, Christians and suffering. So we're going to go through all of these four segments. And Peter is addressing some very practical subjects and is calling Christians to live like Christians in spite of the challenges they face. So let's look at the, uh, the portion of scripture. And we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 11. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 11 reads, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It's God's will that your honorable lives would silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted or threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. 
Once you were like sheep who wandered away. But now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. May God add his blessing to his word. And let's look to the Lord in prayer as we before we launch into the rest of it. A gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit down on us so that we would understand the words that you have written here. Fill us, Lord, with these words. You've given us these words for wisdom. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and minds in such a way that each one of us would be uh, would respond to it. And we may respond to it in different ways, but we pray, Father, that your guidance would be for us. In, in You know our needs. You know where what we lack. And we pray, Father, for your blessing on us. Be with us as we open these words and look at it. Help it be something that we could uh, go at home and think about and read about and tell of others about. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Christian life in the public square. Peter starts his portion in his writing by reminding us that as Christians, we are temporary people living here on this earth. We are foreigners. Yet he does not say we ought to cut ourselves off from the world. We are living in the public square. It's a mindset that he is addressing. See, Simeon was a monk in northern Syria who lived between the 4th and 5th centuries. He entered monastic life before the age of 16. He would subject himself to standing up straight until he collapsed or refusing food or drink during the entirety of Lent. Eventually, Simeon moved to the desert because people were inquiring about his life and practices and he was getting frustrated by people asking about it. To escape them, he erected a column nine feet high and stayed on top, thereby gaining the nickname Simeon the Stylite. The word style means pillar in Greek. In time, the pillar got higher and higher. And by the time of his death, it had got into more than 50 feet. Simeon lived on a platform about one meter square, that's three feet by three feet. He passed his time praying and giving sermons to the curious onlookers below. Local shepherd boys would bring him bread and milk. And visitors would occasionally climb the tower to meet with Simeon. In all, Simeon spent 40 years on top of this column before dying in the year 459. Now as much as you may admire Simeon's dedication to the Lord and to prayer, this was not the life Peter envisioned for Christians. Peter wants us as Christians to think of ourselves as temporary residents as strangers, as exiles, as aliens. We are not always welcome. People may look at Christians with suspicion or even hostility. But we as Christians should not be hostile to the world. We as Christians should not be hostile to the world. 
It's very easy to create a us versus them scenario. Peter is saying that the real enemy is not them, but is our very hearts. It's in our very hearts. Now, Peter knows a thing or two about that. Remember, Peter saw the high priest servant as the enemy when they came to arrest Jesus. He attacked him physically. He wants us to stay away from desires that wage war against our very soul. See, left unchecked, these sinful desires, which are still there after we are born again, will destroy our souls. They will lay waste or consume our interior life. Peter is emphasizing that our public life begins with our private life. Our public life begins with our private life. We cannot separate the two. Christians should engage with their neighbors and others who may not agree with them. Hence, how we live our lives matter. Others are watching us. Our public behavior should be honorable, good, and beautiful. Peter is asking us to play the long game. Even if we are accused of wrongdoing, our Christian response could change the accuser's thinking such that they would eventually give glory to God. Now in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us that the priest and the Levite walked past the injured man. His own countrymen chose to ignore his immediate needs. They made the decision based on their own comfort. Along comes a Samaritan who is despised by the Jews. He has every reason to walk away. But he responds with kindness and empathy even though it would cost him. Even at the convalescence inn where the injured man was taken, the Samaritan tells the proprietor, I will pay for everything that this man needs. All the treatment, all the medical costs. Now if the injured Jewish man recovered and had a birthday party that next year, who do you think is the first person he would invite? I hope it's a Samaritan. What would he say to the other guests who are there? What do you think he would say? I would hope he would say, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here because of this man. I'm here because he saved my life. And his birthday cake would not have candles on it. It will have a big thank you. I hope so. See, we do not know how we touch people. We do not know. If you don't know our neighbors, we cannot touch them. Interact with their neighbors. It's important that as Christians, we come to them with grace. Now the Christians' interaction with the government. The scripture tells us that all authority comes from God. During his trial before Peter, uh, before Pilate, Pilate tells Jesus, 
Don't you know that I have the power to release you or crucify you? He's telling Jesus that. To which Jesus replies, You have no power over me unless it's given to you from above. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. It's the government's job to exercise justice. It punishes those who do wrong. The fear of punishment may keep many from doing evil. The government has the right to use force. Authorities instill fear in those who do evil. But the authority of the state can never be a remedy for sin. Let me repeat that. The authority of the state can never be a remedy for sin. It restrains evil by punishing it. Unchecked evil will cause discord, death, destruction. Unchecked evil will cause discord, death and destruction. Just ask the people on our southern border who have fled from Honduras and Guatemala. Recently, I was made aware of the group of prosecutors and judges from Guatemala who who are investigating the country's most powerful officials were forced to flee to Washington, D.C. because of fear of their life. With their families, they had to flee. The government uses punishment as a necessary element to maintain order in society. Would you like to live without fear of that of authorities? Romans chapter 13, verse 4 tells us what is right, that tells us to do what is right, and then you'll be honored. Do what is right, and then you'll be honored. See, the positive aspect of the role of government is promoting good and protecting peace. Promoting good and protecting peace. Peace is one of the greatest desires of humanity. See, God instructs Jeremiah to tell the exiles to work for the peace and prosperity of the city when I send you into exile. For, the welf- for their welfare will determine your welfare. God instructs them to do that. See, in, in a response to a question that was asked by a reader in Insight magazine. Chuck Swindoll writes, the role of government is ca- in carrying out justice also entails passing and upholding just laws for the good of the community and protecting the needy. Government is to seek, serve and promote the common good of the people, not the good of the rulers. It must promote and never prevent progress towards the peace and prosperity of the society. It is to preserve human dignity. Harm done to another person is a violation of human dignity. See, in this portion, Peter returns back to the earlier theme of Christian living. A Christian living honorable lives such that it would change the perception of others. He reminds a Christian not to use his or her God-given freedom as an excuse for doing evil. He reminds a Christian to respect everyone and love and love the family of believers. But he also ends with two succinct statements that puts it in order. First, 
you ought to fear God. Second, respect the king. He puts it in order. First fear God, then respect the king. Now if you are like me, you'd be asking as a Christian, should I blindly accept all authority? Should I go, could I go on strike or agitate for better working conditions or fairer laws? The Bible does not say that, at least not here. Peter is not trying to answer all the questions or deal with unusual situations. See, the same Peter who writes, submit to all authority, challenged the authorities when he was told to stop talking about Jesus. He answers the Jewish council as recorded in Acts chapter 5. He says, we must obey God rather than men. So you cannot look at this passage of scripture and say that the American Revolution was wrong or that India should not have revolted against the British colonial rule. God puts people in place and removes them. He is the one in control of everything, including the course of human events. Now the next section is the... uh, the Christian and the employer. See, Peter is writing to the Christians in Asia Minor. See, this part of the world was controlled and administered by the Romans. Roman rule prevailed. Most of the wealthier household had slaves. Now, one major source of slaves was from the territories that Rome conquered. Former enemy soldiers became slaves. The commanding general determined the fate of the war captives. It was more profitable to sell them than to kill them. In the Jewish war between the years 66 and 70, it is estimated that there were 97,000 Jews who were enslaved. See, slavery was not based on the color of one's skin like it was in the Americas. Conquest led to slavery. Many of the people who were enslaved were defeated outsiders, regardless of their country of origin. See, I'm going to call this girl's name Sarah for a while. Sarah, don't worry. (laughs) Now, Sarah was captured by the Aramean raiders who had invaded the land of Israel. Now this beautiful young Israeli girl was forced to be a maid, a maid to Naaman's wife. Now do you think Sarah had all the rights granted to the Aramean elite? Absolutely not. Could she leave the the household of Naaman whenever she wanted to? No. Could she do whatever she wanted to? No. Yet, yet we see Sarah. She chose to serve Naaman's wife as best as she possibly could. Now Sarah is possibly aware of the agony that Mrs. Naaman is going through. From what I can judge from the story, she had to be one of 
Mrs. Naaman's favorite maids because Mrs. Naaman listens to her. You can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Sarah not only influences Mrs. Naaman, but also Commander Naaman. Sarah is interested in the wellness of the entire Naaman household. In particular, the very person who enslaved her. Now based on the righteous plea of a servant girl, Naaman does the unthinkable and goes to Israel for healing of his leprosy. On the command of Elisha, the prophet, Naaman reluctantly dips himself into the Jordan River and is miraculously healed. What a change. Naaman then says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now Sarah, against all natural inclinations, purposed in her heart to be the very best maid in Naaman's household. She blessed the household with her presence, her faith, and her action. She made a difference in that household the God of Israel was glorified. Yes, Naaman was healed. Now can you see Naaman standing in front, in the the court of the king, and the king of Aram asking, Naaman, you look so different. What happened to you? And what do you think Naaman is going to say? He's going to tell the story of what happened to him. Who was glorified? Who was glorified? See, during the first century, many slaves had become Christians. The Christian community consists of people from all strata of society. Many of these slaves or household servants worked in extremely difficult conditions. Peter had a tall order for them. Peter tells them, God is pleased when conscious of his will. Remember that, conscious of His will, God's will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Now how does this relate to us? If you have a job, you're employed by an employer, and he has certain expectations of you. As a Christian, how do we respond? How do we behave and do our jobs? It matters. It matters. I've heard Christians express the notion that that's a worldly job. It does not matter. It's only a paycheck. I beg to differ. In fact, Christians should strive to be the best employee, looking out for the the interest of the employer. Now, Jesus alluded to that. In the parable of the, when the three servants were given talents. Now a talent is a unit of gold or silver. One was given five, the other one was given three, another one was given one. What do you think they did with it? The one who had five doubled it. He did something with it. 
The one who had three, doubled it. He did something with it. But the third guy, who had given one, just one, decided to go and hide it. He decided to go and hide it. He did nothing with it. Why? He was afraid to take a risk, to do anything with it. He didn't trust the master had given him that so that he could do something with it. He never did anything with it. And he brings back the one that the master gives him because he says, oh, I hid it because you were a tough master. How we deal with work and others in the workplace matters. It is critical to our testimony. Remember, Peter has already told us that others are watching us. Others are watching. Christians should autograph their work with excellence. They should autograph their work with excellence. Now this passage of scripture has been used to exploit people. Particularly as it relates to slavery here in the cotton fields of the south and in the sugar plantations in the West Indies. One of the exhibits in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. is a slave Bible. This Bible has only 232 chapters compared to 1,189 that you and I have in our Bibles. The slave Bible was published in 1807 by a collective group of missionaries called the Incorporated Society for the Conversion and Religious Instruction and Education of the Negro Slave. It contained about 10% of the Old Testament and about 50% of the New Testament. All references to freedom and escape from slavery were removed, while passages encouraging obedience and submission were emphasized. The publishers and preachers of this twisted version of the Bible thought that the sections of of uh, Exodus, Psalms, and Revelation would instill in the slave a dangerous hope for freedom and equality. Yes, this passage was used to support slavery and keep people enslaved. Allow me to quote an excerpt from Chuck Swindoll's book, The Grace Awakening. Dr. Swindoll writes, As an American, I find it amazing, perhaps a better word is confusing, to think that my forefathers were willing to fight for their own freedom and win our country's independence, yet turn around and enslave others without the slightest hesitation. The triangle of such twisted logic was not mentally congruent. Free citizens owning slaves. It took a civil war to break that yoke. It called for a courageous, clear-thinking president to stand in the gap, to be misunderstood and maligned and ultimately killed for a cause that was to him not only worth fighting for, but worth dying for. Ultimately, with the adoption of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, slavery was legally abolished. And yet something happened that many would have never expected. The vast majority of slaves in the South who were legally freed continued to live as slaves. I call that tragic. 
A war had been fought. A president had been assassinated. An amendment to the constitution was now being signed into law. In a context of hard-earned freedom, slaves chose to remain as slaves. Cruel and brutal, though many of their owners were, men and women chose to keep serving the same old master. That is the way the plantation owners wanted it. The age-old philosophy was, keep them ignorant and keep them in the fields. Now if you think that is tragic, I tell you one far worse. It has to do with Christians living today as slaves. Even though our great emancipator, Christ the Lord, paid the ultimate price to overthrow slavery once for all, most Christians act as though they are still held in slavery, in bondage. In fact, most seem to prefer the security of slavery to the risk of liberty. And our slave master, Satan, loves it so. More than most in God's family, the adversary knows we are free. But he hates it. So he does everything in his power to keep us pinned down in shame, in guilt, in ignorance, and intimidation. Quite something to read. See, Peter, in no uncertain terms, is telling the Christian that we ought to live our life according to God's expectations and not be shackled by the expectations or practice of the people around us. Christ paid the price for us. Christ has won our freedom. What we do, the liberty we have. What do we do with the liberty we have? Do we continue to live with some sin? As God's children, God has better and higher expectations of us. The last segment is the Christian in suffering. See, in living our lives as Christians, we will experience suffering. At this point in time, the Christians in, in the Roman realm were experiencing intense persecution. Intense persecution. Just like this morning, when Chris was telling us about what's happening in Myanmar. Peter reminds the reader that God had called us to do good, even if it meant suffering. He points to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured suffering at the hands of men, People whom he created. So Peter quotes from the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to read it again. Because I think it's very important. Verse 22 reads, Jesus never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. Or threatened revenge when he suffered. Jesus left the case in the hands of God. Who always judges fairly. Jesus personally carried our sin in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who had wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. 
Peter, in writing that, has high expectations of us. See, these precious words were here for our reading. They've been stamped on the pages of history. Peter wants us to have those words etched in our minds. Peter wants us to have those words etched in our minds. It ought to be. Because from it flows our response to the world around us. See, these are wonderful, wonderful words of life. As we conclude, I'll leave you with two things to consider. Just two things. See, whenever a Christian finds himself in relationship with other people, he must behave in accordance with his higher calling. Let me repeat that. Whenever a Christian finds himself in relationship with other people, he must behave in accordance with his higher calling. The second one is, a Christian should always try to autograph his or her work with excellence. A Christian should always try to autograph his or her work with excellence. Joyce has been using a, a daily meditation reading from uh, Timothy Keller. And in the May 6th um, reading, at the bottom, there was a prayer. And I thought it really applied very much to what we've been looking at here. The prayer is, Lord, give me a sense of your undeserved but preserving grace. So that when I look at those who are rejecting you and your ways, I will not disdain them, fear them, or simply not care about them. Teach me to speak the truth in love. Teach me to speak the truth in love. As we conclude, I would like to for you to turn to the first hymn in the hymns of faith. Nana, if you would come up and play. And we sang this uh, at the uh, end of Breaking Your Bread service. But there were two verses in there that stood out to me. Two verses. And those are verses three and four. So if you would stand with me and sing these verses. Hymn number one in the blue book. Verse three.
you have in our Savior. He is with us to the end. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could spend here together looking at your word. We pray, Father, for your blessing on us as we depart from here. Be with the families that are getting together here on this Mother's Day. Help them to have an enjoyable time as we remember what you have done for us and what each mother has done for each one of us. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend together. And we pray, Father, for a blessing on us as we depart from here. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Now, before you sit down, before you sit down, greet each other.